John chapter 10. We're going to read from verse 19 to verse 30. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Father, as we sang in that last song, and whether we sang it with sincere hearts or whether we were just singing it as going through the motions, the truth is, Lord, that we are sheep and you are our shepherd. And we so desperately need you, Lord. And we need you to be our teacher. And we need to hear your word. Every day, Lord, we need to hear your word. And Lord, I just ask that this morning as we consider the teaching of the Lord Jesus, your Son, I pray, Father, that you would open up our hearts, open up our ears, open up our understanding, and help us to receive with meekness the Word of God. Lord, you know how much we need to hear and understand. So please help us, I pray, and speak directly to us as we listen to Jesus. Thank you so much for your care for us, Lord. Help us to understand that more this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Before I became a father, about a year ago, actually, Eusebia's birthday is on the 16th, um, I was often told that once you become a father, your perspective on life is going to change a lot. You're going to see things in a different way. And I certainly believed them before I became a father. I believed that was true, so I was anticipating it. But really, until you experience things, sometimes you don't really understand and know what that really means, right? But I can definitely attest, even as a young father, even though I know there's so much more I need to experience and learn and my perspective will keep changing as you said, he gets older and older, my perspective really has changed as a man being a father. And one of the things as I think about that change that's taken place in my experience and my perspective, one of the things that's impacted me the most, now that I'm a dad and the way that I think, is um, my thinking about danger and safety has changed a lot. Can parents agree with that? Your thinking about danger is different than before you were a parent, and you're thinking about safety. I'm certainly more aware now of hazards in life and the consequences of those hazards, not just for Eusebia, but for me as well. And I think I, in a, more, in a greater way, appreciate safety. And I'll tell you, one thing that's really impacted me as a dad is um, just meditating on those moments when Eusebia wakes up, and she wakes up, and there's Bethany, and there's me, her mom and dad, and she wakes up and she's totally at peace and she sees us and she smiles. And I think about it in that moment, 
that child, that baby, feels totally safe, doesn't she? She feels totally safe. Does Eusebia have any concept, or does a baby have any concept that, you know, my parents might die? <laughs> or, um, you know, an airplane could crash into our house right now if it fell from the sky. Or, you know, they have no concept of all the dangers that could come. You know, we could get some germ and some food because the, the, there was a malfunction at the, at the plant and, and, and we could get sick and die. You know, that baby at that moment just feels perfect. I'd like to think perfect safety. There's nothing dangerous in this situation at all. And I think that's an amazing thing. Of course, she feels that safety, the baby feels that safety, because the baby is oblivious to all the dangers that do exist, right? We really, her parents might not be there tomorrow. And she doesn't know that. Is it possible as adults to attain a place of safety like that? Now, certainly it'd be more challenging, right? Because as adults, we're not oblivious to how dangerous this world is. We're aware of the dangers, and so in order for us as adults to feel safe, we must have assurances that there are things in place that will counteract those potential dangers, right? So we're aware that something could happen, but we have to know there's other things that are going to not allow that dangerous thing to occur. So it's a bit more tricky for us, isn't it, as adults, to find that safety. I'd like to ask you this morning, what is your place of safety? Do you ever feel safe? I mean, really safe? What are the conditions in your own personal life that make you feel safe? When do you feel truly safe? What conditions have to be there before you can say, there's no danger, I'm free from danger? So what is your place of safety? Is it in going to church? Money in the bank? Police car down the road? Gun under the pillow? ISIS far away? What are the conditions in which you have to feel safe? You know, none of those things actually, if you think about it, money in the bank, police, guns, ISIS far away, none of those are really in this fallen world guarantees, are they, that you're actually free from danger. You're never, I think, in this fallen world totally safe from physical harm or danger. There's always something that could happen, an accident. Even more unsettling than physical and temporal danger is eternal dangers. Would you agree? Now, how many of you, when I asked, what is your place of safety, and you were thinking about what is needed in order for you to feel safe, would include in that deliverance from hell and God's wrath, right? Do you, do you personally feel safe unless you're assured that you will not eternally perish in hell? Can a person achieve that place of safety even if they had all the temporal things in life taken care of, but yet their soul was not right with God and they were under the wrath of God. I think of Jesus' parable in Luke 16. He talks about a rich man. He said, in this life you had everything good, right? But now you're in agony, he said to the rich man. And Lazarus, he had everything bad. I mean, that guy had no money. He had no health, nobody looking, no, no social relationships in which people were caring for him. But now he has his peace because his soul was right with God. And so we learn that a person still is not really in safety unless they're actually safe from the eternal dangers. Amen? The truth is, friends, is that we live in a world full of both temporal hazards and eternal dangers. And this is because of our sins and the judgment of God upon us because of our sins and the only place of real safety the one and only place the only high tower as the psalmists continually sing about the only shield the only rock is the lord that is it do you believe that there is no other place of safety but the lord now the passage that we read this morning is about 
this real safety. Many people, when they, many preachers and commentaries, when they discuss this passage, they talk about eternal security. Have you ever heard of that phrase before? That's a beautiful phrase, actually. You're totally safe forever. And that phrase also doesn't just mean you're safe forever, but you're divinely safe. You're safe forever because you're safe with the Lord. This is not a security that's oblivious to realities, but this is a real safety in the face of real dangers. God provides real safety. And where, according to Jesus, as we read in this passage, is that place of real safety? What does he explicitly say in this passage? Well, he tells us here, and we read, that it's in his hands and in the Father's hands. If you're, in the, if you're in Christ's hands and if you're in the Father's hands, then you can rest assured you are in a place of real safety. If you're his sheep and he is your shepherd taking care of you. And Jesus in this passage wants each of us to know where that place of real safety is and to know that if we believe in him and if you believe in him, you are in that place of real safety and he wants you to know it so you can rest in it and so you can have that peace, so you can feel like that baby who is at peace in his father's hands. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? How many, how many want that? You want to rest secure in the father's hands. Well, that's what this passage is about. So we're going to look at this this morning. I've divided this talk up into two sections. So first we're going to look at verse 19 to 27. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to be Christ's sheep? Because this is the condition of being in that place of safety. You have to be his sheep. So what does it mean to be Christ's sheep? And then lastly, we'll look at the eternal security of Christ's sheep that he talks about in verse 28 to 30. So first of all, what does it mean to be Christ's sheep? So let's walk through verse 19 through 27. And then when we get to the end of this, I'd like to summarize what we've learned about what does it mean to be Christ's sheep. So look at verse 19 with me. We're jumping into the middle of the scene. And what we see here in verse 19 is people responding to the teaching of Jesus. We're seeing here a response to things that Jesus has said. And last week we looked at what Jesus just said in the context. So what did he say? Well, Jesus had just taught that he is the door through which anyone must go through in order to legitimately access the sheep, in order to lead them. So basically Jesus says, if anyone comes to you promising to bring the light of God or the light of truth, if anyone comes to you saying, follow me and you'll have eternal life, but they don't come in my name and in my truth, they don't come through me, then they don't have that signal, right? They're not really from the Father. And what do they intend for you? Do they intend to bless you or do they intend your harm? If they don't come through Christ, they intend your harm, Jesus is saying. So essentially he's saying, you know all these Pharisees and these leaders who are rejecting me, but they're claiming to lead you and bless you? They're actually intending your harm. And secondly, Jesus taught that he is the good shepherd. He's the true leader who comes to the sheep in his name and in the name of God, and he leads us to eternal life. He's the good shepherd because he knows us, he cares for us, and unlike hirelings, he lays down his life for us. That's how beautiful Jesus is for you. Just remember that with me this morning. You have a Savior who loves you, who cares for you, and who laid his life down for you. Now, he doesn't leave, in what he says in the following here, he hasn't left this shepherd and sheep teaching. But in the light of this teaching, as usual, there's division, isn't there? And it seems like John brings that out in verse 9. A division occurred again. So we've already seen many times in the Gospel of John, division. And we learn a lesson as we look at this division repeatedly occurring with Jesus' teaching, and that is this. Division comes with Jesus' teaching. It always has, and it always will. Now, can you attest today that division still comes because of Jesus' teaching? Have you yourself experienced breakdown of relationship because of Jesus and his word? One thing people hate about Jesus is that he divides. 
In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 36, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Now, if you go online and you read the news or you read religious columns or you read about popular religious figures in this world like the Dalai Lama or the Pope, Francis, or, uh, you know, you, you name it, just these popular guys who give their opinions on the news channels, what are they always talking about? They're always talking about bringing people together in peace, right? They're always talking about uniting everybody under God, under the basics of religion. We all sort of are the same. Let's just all get along and stop the hate and stop the violence, right? And Jesus doesn't come into the world with the intent of dividing. That's not his, his purpose is to bring the truth, but he knows that the truth divides. And so he says, the truth is going to divide and so be it. But the world hates him for that. Jesus, friends, is not good for unity, right? He's good for unity among Christians, but he's not good for unity in this world. So if our objective is for everybody just to get along and not disagree and not divide, we have to get rid of Jesus. And that's exactly what the religious world is doing today. And I've always done, really. He's a troublemaker. He's a disturber of the peace. Jesus takes away our sense of safety because he divides. And so they put blame on him. You're a divisive person, Jesus, in what you teach. But here's the thing. The blame actually lies with those who hate the truth. Division really exists because of those who hate the truth and reject the light. It's interesting in the in the 16th century, the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the others, they were also accused of being divisive. They're saying, look, what you're preaching, what you're teaching is dividing the Catholic Church to pieces. You're destroying the unity of Christendom. It must be wrong what you're doing. Here's what Calvin said in response. The principal charge with the, which the papists bring against us is that our doctrine has shaken the tranquility of the church. Yet the truth is that if they would yield submissively to Christ and give their support to the truth, all the commotions would immediately be allayed. So Calvin is saying, actually, they're destroying the tranquility of the church because we're bringing the truth and they're fighting it and they're hostile to it. And Calvin says, and Luther said, and we also need to say, and Jesus believed this, that it's better to side with the truth and create division than to maintain unity at the cost of lies. And Jesus knew this would dis destroy families, and it's a heavy burden. But it's the way it's going to be. So if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, expect division. Sometimes we have to give up one safety to gain a greater safety. We have to give up the safety and the pleasure that comes with being united for the safety of being in Christ. And you'll notice in these, in verse 19, 20, and 21, there's a radical division. There's, on the one hand, you have people who are saying Jesus has a demon. This man is demon-possessed and insane. That's how they hear his teaching. Isn't that amazing? Now, now we as Christians, when we hear Jesus' teaching, we don't hear someone who's demon-possessed and insane, right? But that's how radical... The contrast is here between being a sheep and being not a sheep. The same teaching and the same words comes to one person as evil and crazy. And to the others as that's of God and that's the most sound thing I've ever heard in my life. Right? So there's a radical and extreme division going on here. The, on the other side they say no, he can't be demon possessed. He's got to be someone amazing. Maybe even the Messiah Now, in verse 22, we're told that at the time, it's the Feast of the Dedication. Now, does anyone know what feast that was? The Feast of the Dedication? What's that? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. That's right. It's Hanukkah. It's interesting that the Feast of Hanukkah, which we know is celebrated by the Jews around Christmas time, 
uh, is not actually prescribed in the law of Moses. And that's because the Feast of Hanukkah did not originate until uh, 165 BC. So long after the Old Testament was even finished being written. And if you know the history of the time, uh, there was a Greek king called Antiochus Epiphanes, and he basically said, everyone in my kingdom is going to have the same religion, and we're not going to tolerate the Jewish religion. The Jews need to give up their God and their practices, and they need to adopt the religion of the Greeks. And so they banned, he banned circumcision, he banned all the Torahs, he burned the Torah scrolls, he actually uh, took over the Temple Mount, and he dedicated it to Zeus, and he even sacrificed a pig upon the altar in mockery of Jehovah. And he says, we're done. Judaism is done. And how'd the Jews, do you think, respond to that? <laughs> well, not well. So they revolted, and there was fighting, and there was a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus, or Judas the Hammer, and he led the revolt, and eventually they purged uh, Antiochus Epiphanes out of their land, and they rededicated the temple to worship the one true God. And that's what the Feast of Dedication is all about. That's what Hanukkah is all about. The Jews celebrate the time when that idolatry was driven out of Israel and the, the temple was restored to the true worship of God. That's what Hanukkah is all about. And so here's Jesus in Jerusalem at Hanukkah. Now, why does John mention this? Now, some commentators I was reading say that John only mentions this feast to explain verse 23. So verse 23 says it's winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So some commentators say he just, it just mentions the feast to explain why he's there and why he's in the, the, the porch of Solomon. Why? Because it's winter, it's cold, it's rainy. But other commentators, and I, I agree with them, say, no, look, this shows that Jesus is in Jerusalem, which he usually isn't, if you remember. He's almost always in Galilee. Jesus was in Jerusalem at this feast, which means he was sanctioning this feast. Jesus was actually supportive of ridding Israel of idolatry and restoring the true worship of God. He's all about that. That's a good thing to celebrate. But the interesting thing is, is that Jesus is the one who truly restores the true worship of God, isn't he? I like to think that we might, instead of saying Judah Maccabeus, we might say Jesus Maccabeus. <laughs> Jesus is the hammer, right, who, who, who drives out and, and smashes idolatry from Israel. And he is the one who restores the true worship of God. And that's what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of John through his preaching cleansing of the temple, challenging the status quo. In verse 24, as Jesus is in the portico of Solomon, we see here that the Jews gathered around him. Now in the Greek, it literally means they encircled him. So in your mind now, you've got to picture Jesus teaching, and all of a sudden these people approach him and they literally surround him. They're not going to let him escape this time. Too often he slips through the crowds. This time they're not going to let that happen. And they, they surround him so that he has to answer their question. And here's their question. How long will you keep us in suspense? So this is their interpretation of his ministry so far. You're not really telling us plainly that you're the Christ. You're just kind of keeping us in suspense. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And we're not letting you get away this time. In other words, they're casting blame on Jesus for their unbelief. The reason we don't believe in you is because you haven't made it clear yet, right? You're keeping us in suspense. It's your fault. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Just tell us plainly. And what does Jesus say to this charge against him? Well, we see in verse 25 through 27, Jesus reiterates again what he's already taught, what he's already said throughout the Gospel of John. If you go back to chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8, earlier in chapter 10, he's, he's already given them this very same answer. 
And what he says here to them in response is this. The problem is not with me being unclear. The problem is with you. And he says, I have already told you, but you do not believe. So according to Jesus, I've made it plain and I've told you, you just won't believe. So the problem isn't that you don't have enough information, but you don't want to believe. That's what he's taught so many times already, as we've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of John, isn't it? And Jesus says here, the works that I do, in verse 25, I do them in my Father's name and they testify of me. Do you remember in John chapter 5, there was this courtroom drama going on and Jesus brought in all these witnesses to testify that he was who he said he was. And he's reiterating that again. He's saying, look, everything I've said, everything I've done bears witness to who I am. Everything I say and do is in perfect accordance with the law of God. All of my works demonstrate the divine power that's operating in me, in consistency with God's truth and with his law. And I demonstrate through my words the love and my, and my works the great love of God as well. And you should know who I am. Everything I do and everything I say speaks of the truth. So I have told you plainly, but you won't believe. It's just like Romans chapter 1, verse 20, friends. Now, if you remember, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says that all of nature and creation bears witness to the power and the divinity of God, right? All of nature and creation, by all the things God has made, you can what? Sort of see that there's a God and that he's wise and powerful and, and he's above all things. Is that what Paul says? You can sort of see that, kind of, with difficulty? No. It says they're clearly seen so that men are without excuse. But what happens? Well, we have people today who said, if there is a God, why doesn't he just come down plainly and just say, there's a God, here I am, right? When nature is testifying day in and day out all the time clearly that there's a God, and yet men's attitudes are, how long will God keep us in suspense? Just tell us plainly. But Jesus is exposing their unbelief, their hatred of God and truth here. He's saying, you're just trying to justify your unbelief by putting the blame on me not being clear. You're trying to pretend it's all fuzzy. It's not. The power and divinity of Christ are clearly seen in what he has done so that men are without excuse. And just like in Romans 1, why do people not glorify God? Because they don't love him, because they're not thankful, because they don't want to. They have evil hearts. And so Jesus gives us that same answer in the Gospel of John for why they don't believe in him. So look at the next verse. Why do they not believe according to Jesus? You don't believe because you are not my sheep. Not because I haven't given you enough witness, but because you are not my sheep. Now notice he does not say... Um, you need to believe in order to become my sheep. But what he says here is, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. For in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So why don't you hear my voice and know me and follow me? Why are you pretending you're still in suspense? Because you're not really my sheep. What makes a person a sheep or not? Well, verse 29 tells us, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And we looked at this in detail in chapter 6. And if you want to hear more about that or learn more about that, uh, please talk to me. Go back and listen to that sermon again. But God in his grace is the one who gives people to Jesus. Because otherwise, friends, I mean, you have to think about this. Otherwise... As Jesus says, no one would come unto me. No one can come unto me unless it was given unto them by the Father because the Bible teaches the radical evil of human beings. I mean, if you're a believer in Jesus today, if you're a sheep who's heard his voice and come, is that because you don't have an evil heart? You know, all those people out there who reject Jesus, according to the Bible, they have an evil heart, and that's why they reject Jesus. But me, I accept Jesus because I'm not evil like they are, right? 
That's not what the Bible teaches. But all of us are evil. And it's by the grace and mercy of God if a person comes. That's what Jesus is saying here. Glory to God. Now this doesn't mean that if a person doesn't believe in him, they're not responsible for not believing. Jesus clearly is putting the blame on them. You know, if you wanted to believe, you would. You could. You'd be saved. The invitation is there for all people. Christ says, believe in me. I'm the Son of God. I've come to save you. People hate that. Turn from him. It's their fault. Nor does this, this mean either that all Christians immediately believe in Jesus the first time they hear the gospel. I think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul hated the message of the gospel, didn't he? But Paul says in Galatians 1, when it pleased God to reveal his son in me, and God called Paul out of darkness and into light when it pleased him. To summarize then, what we learn here in verses 19 through 27 about what it means to be a sheep is this. Jesus came, Jesus Maccabeus, the hammer, to destroy lies, to destroy idolatry, and to restore the true knowledge and worship of God. He came to bring the light, the truth about God, the truth about righteousness, the truth about sinners, the truth about salvation by grace. And as he comes and does this, he divides the world. And there's two responses to Jesus. That of rejection, he's crazy, he's evil, and that of acceptance. That is the voice of God, that is the voice of truth. I know him and he knows me and I follow him. So as he comes, he divides and reveals who his sheep are and who are not his sheep. So what does it mean to be a sheep? It means that you have heard his voice and you have followed him and believed. You are now under his care. Which brings us to the next three verses. And this is something we, we all desperately need to hear daily, I think. To encourage each other daily in. Because just because you hear it in a sermon or one Bible study, you got the doctrine, you know, doesn't mean that it's actually going to encourage you on a daily basis, right? Because you're going to forget it. The devil's going to try to pervert it and twist it. But let's meditate this morning together on what Jesus himself says here about the eternal security of Christ's sheep. So in the following verses, Jesus moves on from talking about who his sheep are to describe the unspeakable, brothers and sisters, the unspeakable benefit and blessing of being his sheep. Here's what he says. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In other words, if you're a sheep, not only does God perform a powerful work in bringing you to Jesus, but he continues unrelentingly to perform a powerful work in holding you in his hand and keeping you and disallowing anyone to snatch you out of his hand. And this is honestly one of the greatest promises in the Bible that brings peace and comfort to our souls so that we can be like that baby just resting in our father's care. I think if we don't grasp this teaching, we're not going to have that kind of a security heard many times in the Gospel of John Jesus say things like, Jesus tell us that whoever believes will have eternal life and not perish. That's John 3.16, isn't it? But here his emphasis is not simply on whoever believes will have eternal life and not perish, but on the absolute certainty of that, the total security of the believer. They will receive eternal life 
Because you know, you could read that verse, John 3, 16, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You could say, amen, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And as so many people do believe, uh, read that verse, many people read that verse and say, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's true. So long as you're believing in him, right? If you're believing in him, you have eternal life. But beware, because even though you're believing in him, it may, end, may happen that you end up not with eternal life because Satan snatches you out of his hand or, or you jump out of his hand or you sin too badly and he throws you out of his hand. <laughs> so Jesus here is emphasizing the total and absolute certainty and security that whoever believes, whoever is his sheep, will not perish because the Father and Jesus himself holds them in his hand. He will not lose his sheep. That's what Jesus is saying. His explicit and his, his stated reason for this is that we are in the hands of God. Do you think of yourself as a Christian in the hands of God? Well, that's good if you do, and we should. Do you ever think of yourself as a Christian as slipping out of the hands of God? Yeah. You ever feel that? <laughs> I mean, you shouldn't, but do you ever feel it? Or do you ever feel like, where are you, God? Am I really in your hand? But Jesus says we are in his hand, and Jesus shows us here that Jesus' hand and the Father's hand are one. You see in verse 30, Jesus says here, I and the Father are one. And you notice in verse uh, 28, he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. In verse 29, no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, when Jesus says he and the Father are one, in this verse, most commentators think and agree that he's probably not making a direct metaphysical statement about his own being at this, at this, in this verse. That is, when Jesus is here saying, I and the Father are one, he's probably not making this direct statement about his being. I am God just like God is God. Rather, Jesus seems to be talking about the unity of the Father and the Son in their love for the sheep, in their purpose in saving the sheep, and in their saving power in keeping the sheep in their hand. He seems to be saying that to be in my hand and to be in the Father's hand is indistinguishable. We're both preserving you. And to be preserved by me is to be preserved by the Father, and to be preserved by the Father is to be preserved by me. That's probably all that he's saying here. However, although he's not probably making this direct statement about him being divine here, a unity of love, a unity of purpose, and a unity of power indirectly applies a unity of essence. How could Jesus and the Father be one in loving the sheep, in saving the sheep, in, his per in their purpose in saving, and in their power in saving, unless Jesus was in fact God? How could anybody be so united with God in that way unless they were divine? So we should read in this verse an indirect statement of his divinity, absolutely. But the point here is that if you're in Christ's hands, you're in God's hands, and you're in good hands. What does it mean to be in the hands of God? And why is it that being in God's hands offers eternal security? Jesus says it will, and it does, but why? Now, throughout the Bible, the Bible talks a ton about God's hands, doesn't it? I mean, just go to a concordance and look up the word hand and God, and you'll find hundreds of verses. And almost all those verses are talking about God's power, God's ability, God's saving and mighty acts. For example, Psalm 89, verse 13, you have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, High is your right hand. And that psalm is recounting the awesome deeds of the Lord, his judgments and his salvation. And in the midst of recounting all that God does and how powerful he is, 
the psalmist just exclaims, your hand is high and mighty. We've all heard of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards preached that in the 1700s. He was referring to a verse in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 that says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it's interesting because here Jesus is comforting us that we're in the Father's hands. And in that verse, no one's receiving any comfort for being in the hands of a terrifying God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Jonathan Edwards was talking about what does it mean to be a sinner in the hands of an angry God? It's a scary thing because if God picks you up in his hand and you are not reconciled to him, friend, and you are unrighteous and you are blamable in his sight and you have not believed in his son and you're still under his wrath and he, he picks you up in his hand, well, God is totally just and righteous and powerful and able to destroy you. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying when he says it's a terrifying thing to fall into a mighty God's hands who actually has the ability to, to destroy you and tear you to pieces. You don't want to be put into the hands of God if you're not reconciled to him and if you're not forgiven of your sins. You don't want to be put into his hands. Jesus says don't fear those who have the power to destroy your body but after that, they can't do anything more. Their hand can't reach that far. Once you're dead, they can't touch you anymore. But Jesus says, I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear God, who after they've destroyed the body, he has the hand, he has the power, he has the ability and the righteous justice to destroy both your body and your soul in hell. You don't want to fall into his hands as a sinner in an unreconciled state. But, on the other hand, as extremely awful it is, as it is to fall into the hands of the living God as an unreconciled sinner, it is, on the other hand, extremely unspeakably awesome to be put into his hands as a reconciled sinner. A God whose hands are totally powerful and able to uphold you and to preserve you and to establish you in peace. So whether we are unreconciled or reconciled, we're going to be in his hands. The question is, will we be there in blessing or will it be a curse? Will his sheep are in his hands as, as a blessing? And John Gill says this, his sheep must be safe and always abide there who are in the hands of Christ for his hands have laid the foundations of the heavens and the earth. They grasp the whole universe and hold all things together. And who can pluck any of these out of his hands? It is an awesome thing to have the almighty God on your side. Now earlier I said that we feel safe, totally and perfectly safe, either if we're oblivious to the dangers like a baby, right? So I'm just not even aware of the dangers, so I feel safe. Or we feel safe because being aware of the dangers, we have the assurances that there's something there that will counteract those dangers and those dangers won't touch us. And what Jesus is saying is, you need to understand that if you're his sheep and you're aware of all the dangers in life and the things that want to snatch you out of the Father's hand, the assurance that you're safe and will, the, the assurance that those dangers will not come to you is the hands of the Father. And that's where your peace and your sense of safety comes from. Not the absence of danger, but the presence of God in his hand. What are the dangers that threaten to rob us of eternal life? Why do people feel fear that they won't be saved? Well, the fears are manifold, I think, because the dangers are manifold. Lots of things make us feel like we're not going to be saved. Number one, our sins, right? I feel guilty. I feel condemned. I feel like I'm not going to, to be accepted by God because I'm a dirty, wicked, evil person, and every single day I seem to prove that. 
So that's one danger we feel on judgment day. I'm going to be condemned by the just judge because I'm guilty. And so I don't have safety in my, in my, in my life because I'm afraid of that, afraid of his judgment. Another fear is that, well, the Bible tells us that Satan is out there as a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And as Christians, we're told to be on our guard, to fight the good fight, to resist the devil so he'll flee. And, I, and I'm afraid. I feel like he's a stronger enemy than I am. I, I feel weak on so many days, and I think he's going to get me. And so I don't think I'm going to make it to the end. That's a fear people have. I'm afraid of all the false teachers. Jesus specifically warned, beware of false Christs and false teachers. Don't let anyone take you captive through hollow philosophies and false teachings and false deceptions. And you might feel, man, I, I don't know if I have the ability, the capability to, to filter through all that false teaching every single day bombarded with some new thing. Will I really make it to the end without being deceived? How do I know I'm not deceived or I won't be deceived? There's a fear. Or what about a fear of persecution? How many of you have, as Christians have felt, man, I'm so glad I live in America because I don't have to face, you know, the torture rack. But what if, I, what if for whatever reason in the future, persecution does come down the line and I have to be tortured for my faith or die for my faith? I'm afraid. I get a sense of danger here that I might renounce the faith on the torture rack. I don't want pain. I don't want to die. I know it, what a weak, selfish person I am. Will I really have eternal life and make it? I mean, I don't know about you. I struggle with these feelings. Because I know my own heart, my own sinfulness, my own selfishness, my own weakness. So what is the assurances? What is the assurance that I have that these dangers will not get me. What shall I say to these things? Well, I guess the assurance I have that I will make it is that I'm going to have to just be strong, right? I'm going to have to just be tough. I'm going to have to just work hard at it and not be deceived. I'm going to have to just stop sinning so I can feel clean. And the answer the Bible gives is no, you're not going to have assurance there. Those, thing, those things do not give you that sense of safety and that sense of peace. Because the whole point is not being strong in yourself. Your assurance that you will not be overcome by these hazards and these dangers, Jesus is telling us here, is the hand and the power and the ability and the promise and the purpose of your shepherd of God. God exercises his power to keep you. He does this in two ways, I believe. If you just want to boil it all down, he exercises his power in two ways to preserve us from perishing in the face of these dangers. First and foremost, he preserves us from our guilt through the blood of his son. Jesus died upon the cross, friends, to take away our sins, past, present, and future, and through his one sacrifice, he perfects us forever in the sight of God. And he makes us blameless and he keeps us blameless through his own blood and not through our own efforts and through our own obediences and through our own righteousnesses. The whole point of the cross is God knows we are not righteous. God knows we are not going to be righteous by our works. And so he sent Jesus Christ to provide for us that covering and that righteousness and that forgiveness that we need. And so how am I preserved from that danger of, I don't think I'm going to have eternal life because I think God will judge me and send me to hell because I'm guilty. Well, we don't turn to ourselves, we turn to Christ. We remember what Christ has done for us. We remember the power of the cross, the working of God in removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. Isn't, isn't that what, all we can do when we feel guilty, friends? And when the, as we sing in those songs, when Satan tempts you to despair, tells you of all your guilt, what do you do? And you're starting to feel not safe anymore. Well, how do you feel safe again? You remember what God has done for you through Christ. And if you're a sheep and you're a believer, you are blameless in the sight of God, not because of your works, 
but because of the blood of Christ. So I just want to encourage you as Christians this morning, if you're a believer in him, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And I know sometimes that can be hard to rest in, but that is the truth if you have trusted in him. Romans 8, verse 33 and 34 says, Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn? It is Christ who died and who has risen again and who is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. So Paul's point is no one can bring any charge against you as a, as a Christian because of Jesus. And there's your safety. So that's the first thing about the hand of God. No one can get you out of that hand. You're safe in that hand because that hand is the power of God and the power of God is the death of Christ and taking away your sins. And the second thing that God does is despite the workings of Satan, despite the strong delusion that comes and that puts people in deception, despite the fear of persecution and the reality of persecution, and even despite the evil and the selfishness of your own heart, God, by his power, works in us through his Holy Spirit to keep us in the faith, to keep us from deception, to keep us strong when we're persecuted. No matter what the danger is, it is God's work in preserving us in any circumstance and not our own strength, but his. You can trust God that if you're really his, he's going to get you through any danger and any trial. Do you believe that? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, John is talking about false teachers. False teachers come and try to get you off the path. And he says, you know what? You sheep have overcome them and will overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You're going to overcome all deception and lies that come, come your way because God is in you and his spirit is in you. He's the one who brought you in the first place. He's the one who's going to keep you there till the very end. You have that assurance. Please turn with me to Jeremiah 32. And this is another wonderful promise. God will keep you. Jeremiah chapter 32. And look near the end of the chapter, in chapter 32, in verse 39. And here's what God does for his sheep. Jeremiah 32, 39, and 40. He says here, I will give them one heart and one way. I will do that. That they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do, the, to do them good. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? I will not turn away from them to do them good. I won't leave you. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. And what will result? So that they will not turn away from me. You see what this promise is? I will do this. I will give them one heart. I will put my fear into them and they will not turn away from me. So in other words, you can't jump out of the Father's hand. Have you ever heard people say that? You're safe in the Father's hand as long as you don't jump out of the Father's hand, right? But here the promise is no, you're safe in the Father's hand because he's the one who brought you into it and he's the one who's going to keep you there. You will not turn away from him. Not, be, not under the sat Satan's attacks, not under false teachers' deceptions, not under persecution either. That doesn't mean as Christians you might not feel like you might or you might be worried about that, but the, the remedy to that worry and, the, and the, the way to feel safe again is to remember, hey, this isn't about me being strong. This is about what God will do. Does that make sense? This is about resting in his hand. I'm safe because he's going to take care of me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, He that began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day 
of Christ Jesus. In other words, our salvation is God's work from the beginning all the way to the end, and he's the one who gets all the praise for it. One pastor said, it is not so much the perseverance of the saints as it is the perseverance of the Savior. And John Calvin writes, the salvation of all the elect is not less certain than the power of God is invincible. In other words, the only way that our salvation would now be in jeopardy is if God were to stop being God. <laughs> then you can worry about it not having eternal life. But so long as God is God, so long as God is powerful, so long as God is faithful, so long as God is able, you will stand. Why does David say in, in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I get the sense in Psalm 23 that David is like that baby, just totally at peace, right? Totally safe in God's care. And he has the sense that my whole life, goodness and mercy is going to follow me. Surely it is. No doubt about it. It's going to follow me all my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's even assurance there of his salvation, right? I've got eternal life. I'm going to be with God forever. How is it that David had that assurance? And the answer is, because the Lord was his shepherd, right? Not because of anything else. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in John 10. Do you want the assurance that you're going to be safe through the rest of your life? Do you want the assurance that you're going to have eternal life and dwell in the house of the Lord forever? The Lord is my shepherd. He is the one who cares for me, and I'm in his hand. That is where safety comes from. So in closing this morning, I'd just like to point out that these are the words of Jesus Christ. These are not my words. Jesus Christ tells us that his sheep, all of them, receive eternal life. They will not perish and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. The security that we have, the eternal security, comes from being in the hand of the Father, and that's Jesus' teaching. And you'll remember in John 17, friends, Jesus prayed for us, prayed for all his people. Did he pray that we'd be removed from the world and all of its troubles in John 17? No. He actually explicitly prays, I do not pray that you take them out of the world but that you'd keep them from evil. And so Jesus' intent is that while we live in this earth with all of its trouble and all of its satanic onslaughts, that in the midst of it all, we would have assurance and security, not, in, not because of the absence of danger, but because of the presence of of God and the knowledge of his care for us. So please don't wait till the absence of danger to have a sense of safety in your life as a Christian. It's okay to, to be aware of the danger. But Jesus wants you to know in the midst of it all and through it all, you're in the Father's hands and therefore you're safe. That is the place of safety and the high tower. Not in ourselves, but in him. May we like those babies, except minus the obliviousness. May we rest securely in the Father's hands. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Father, your care for us is amazing and, and incredible. And we need to hear it. And so I pray, Father, that just through the meditation this morning on this passage and on Jesus' teaching, you would encourage the hearts of your people that we are safe in your hands no matter what. 
And thank you that you're like that, Lord, and that you have undertaken for us. And Father, I pray for any who have yet to believe in you and to be reconciled to you through faith, that, Lord, you would draw them to you, you would open their eyes, remove the hardness of their heart, and, Father, that today would be the day of salvation in which sinner, a sinner passes from death to life and from darkness into light and into your care, Lord. Thank you that it's by grace we're saved. And, Lord, I just pray that you would um, remind us again of all that you have done for us so that we can rejoice in your power and give you praise. In Jesus' name I ask, amen.